Okay, I'm going to try to remember the announcements. <clears throat> we have the men's prayer breakfast coming up on um, Saturday the 17th. I want to encourage all you guys to come if you haven't been. We do have a great breakfast. Some people just come for the sausage, gravy, and biscuits. Other people come for other reasons. Some people come because they like to talk about the Bible. And every now and then we have special guest speakers. Last month our special guest speaker was one of the uh, candidates who is running for the Republican nomination for uh, Congress in District 2, which is the district that kind of runs up the west side of Houston from I-10 north, covers parts of Spring Branch, and then goes all the way up to Lufkin and Nacogdoches. So it's a very interesting district. Ted Poe is stepping down because he has leukemia. So we had Dan Crenshaw last month, and we're going to have Kathleen Wall speak to us this next time on the 17th. So I think that it's going to be one of those two, and this is a strong Republican district, so I think that one of those two is probably going to be our next congressman. So that's a great opportunity to come. We'll record it so the ladies can watch it later. And uh, be a good good opportunity. It's a great time for, for men to get together. Also, we had the Chafer Conference coming up. By the way, I had a, I've had three telephone conversations in the last two weeks with George Meisinger. He sounds great. His voice is the strongest I've heard it in five or six years. He's doing really well in his response to uh, different therapy, and they've discovered that uh, they did an MRI on his back because he, he, I, I went up there three years ago, and I was the guy who was put in charge of pushing his wheelchair. I grew up with a mother in a wheelchair, so I've been delegated that responsibility several times. I'm typecast. So anyhow, he um, uh, it's a back problem for why he's weak and has difficulty walking, and they've discovered that he's got like four vertebrae that are just jammed up next to each other, and so they have this system he calls miraculous where they insert some sort of concrete between the these vertebrae so it set, keeps them separate and then um, he'll be able to walk and there's no pain and he's all excited he's even thinking about coming to Washington DC for the Museum of the Bible trip how about that so pray for George um, I think that's about all I can remember from the announcements Alan do you remember anything else anything I'm missing okay Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever." We always begin with a few moments of silent prayer. Scripture says that we are to walk by the Spirit. That means that we must be in right relationship with God. We use the term fellowship, which means that we're enjoying an intimacy and rapport with God because there is not the interference of sin in our life. Scripture says in Psalm sixty-six, eighteen, that if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. So the solution is 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess, which simply means to admit or acknowledge to God our sins, then he will forgive us of those sins and then cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and we're instantly forgiven. And in right relationship with him, that relationship is restored. So we always give people the opportunity to make sure they're in right relationship with the Lord before I open in prayer and begin to teach. And so we will bow our heads together, and after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray.
Father, it's a great privilege that we have to worship you. We have that privilege because of your grace, because of your goodness. It's not because of anything that we've done. It's not because of our position. It's not because of our uh, financial status. It's not because of the fact that we belong to some denomination. It has nothing to do with anything that we've ever done. It has everything to do with what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And by faith in him, we've been given his righteousness, and that alone is the basis for our standing with you. Father, we're thankful so much for your grace, your goodness, and the fact that you've given us your word, that we can come to understand you, and that we can understand uh, your plan and your purpose for our lives, and that we can grow close to you and experience a rapport and intimacy through God the Holy Spirit that is beyond anything that we could imagine that we can actually appropriate that which Jesus promised, that we can have a, an, a, an abundant life, not just life, but a life abundant because of our walk with you. And, Father, we pray that you challenge us to press on, to focus on that, and to make that the priority in our lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we are in First Peter, and we're studying this first paragraph in First Peter chapter 4 focusing on really the idea of our thinking. So often today in Christian circles, emotion is emphasized as a criterion for the spiritual life, a criteria for rapport with God. But when we actually study the scripture and we go verse by verse through the scripture, we see an emphasis on thinking. So thinking is the title for this message, thinking which is the Christian life focus. 1 Peter 4, 1 says, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. And as I've pointed out in the previous lessons, that's the command here is to arm ourselves. It's a military term, and it has to do with how we are prepared to, to face the issues in life. And particularly when Peter is writing this this epistle. These are Jewish background believers as he identifies them in the first uh, verse, uh, first couple of verses in First Peter, who are part of the dispersion, the di- diaspora uh, of, of Jews. And they are essentially catching flack from both sides. They're getting it from Jews who haven't accepted Jesus as Messiah, and they're getting it from the Gentile community. They are a minority in the Gentile community, and they're catching it from the from the Gentile community, and so they are suffering. They're suffering because of rejection. They're suffering because of overt persecution as well as covert persecution. And the model, the pattern that we see all the way through First Peter, as we've studied again and again, is the pattern for suffering is to look at the Lord Jesus Christ, to think about, contemplate, meditate on the unjust suffering that he faced. And, of course, this is parallel to what we're studying on Sunday morning in Matthew as we're looking at the uh, just this last week the uh, mockings, the way in which they ridiculed uh, the soldiers, ridiculed, made fun of the Lord. And then we see it's not just the soldiers, it's the passers-by, it's the people, it's the religious leaders, it's the soldiers at the foot of the cross. All that were coming there were just ridiculing the Lord. And so he's the pattern for this suffering. Since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, we saw that meant in his human body during the incarnation, we are to have the same mind. And we've gone through that term. But in First Peter, in terms of the context, this, I, this focus on Christ's suffering for us picks up the idea that stated in the last paragraph of the previous chapter, for Christ also suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. That is the pattern for us for verse 17, which says, For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Most of us really don't want to suffer at all much less suffering for doing that which is good. So the illustration, again, takes us back to Christ. So we are to arm ourselves with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh 
has ceased from sin. And I pointed out, as we went through the exegesis of that, that the idea of being armed with the same mind has the idea of being armed with the same resolve that the Lord had, his focus, his mental attitude, focus at the cross. And then it's saying, for he who has suffered in the flesh, that is, for the believer, that he doesn't refer to Jesus, for the believer who is going through adversity in this life, he has ceased from sin. Now, that sounds like he doesn't sin anymore. But you have to understand the, the Greek grammar here indicates that this is, um, this is explaining further the idea of what this arming yourself with this resolve is. And the resolve is to cease from sin. That's the focal point here, to cease from sin. Now, the problem is everybody's got one of these, a sin nature. Even that cute little grandbaby, that cute little nephew or niece, or that cute little baby that you have is just a sin nature wrapped up in the flesh. And we know what the Bible says about the flesh, and we know what the Bible says about sin. And that is why Proverbs were told that the rod of correction is to drive that foolishness out of the heart of the fallen infant. Who te- that's the role of parent, is to teach correct train a child. Discipline just doesn't mean corporal discipline. It has the idea of training a child so that they can come to understand, at least through um, non-spiritual means, ways in which they can have self-discipline and self-control as they grow older and control the sin nature. And then if they And if and when they become a believer, they need to learn the spiritual skills that are important for controlling the sin nature. And so we look at this diagram that we use on the sin nature, and we see that there's a at the top area of strength called human good. And human good is the morality that any fallen creature can produce. There are a lot of unbelievers who are very, very good. They're very moral. They're very kind. They're very gentle. They have a measure of integrity that sometimes is lacking in in Christians. That's the area of strength. They can produce a relative good. It's not the kind of good that uh, gets merit with God, but it is a relative good. Then at the bottom, we have the area of weakness, which is personal sins. Where, the, where we sin. We sin in terms of mental attitude sins like arrogance and anger, resentment, revenge motivation, lust, various lusts. All of these things are mental attitude sins. We have sins of the tongue, gossip, and maligning. We have overt sins, murder, uh, various criminal actions, thievery, uh, homos- uh, rape, sexual abuse, all kinds of things like that. That all comes out of the area of weakness. At the core, we have lust patterns. Driving the lust patterns is our arrogance. We are born self-absorbed. If you don't know that, you haven't spent a lot of time with babies. They don't have to learn to be self-absorbed. They don't have to learn that it's all about them. They, they come out of the womb, and they immediately scream for food and attention and water, um, They don't have to be taught that. It's all about them. And that radically changes the life of two very happy, young, married people when all of a sudden they learn that it's not about them anymore. It's all about that new baby that has invaded their space. Arrogance then drives various lust patterns to feed that self-absorption, what I want. And so they can go in different directions. They can go towards asceticism, which is the idea of a, of a monk or a monastic or somebody who's very self-righteous and they live according to a rigid moral code, thinking that that morality will gain approval with God. That produces a moral degeneracy. Now, some people think that's an odd term, moral degeneracy. We think of moral people as not being degenerate. But when you look at the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders of Israel that were very moral, trying to live up to the Mosaic law, they were moral degenerates. So we have people who claim to be very moral who are degenerate because only God can change a person's heart and produce that which is uh, 
has righteousness. On the other hand, we have people who are licentious. That means you just think that you have a license to do whatever you want to do in sin, and that's also called antinomianism. Now, these words are going to show up in our study tonight. Uh, licentiousness, lasciviousness that has to do with sexual lust, and antinomianism, which means that there are no laws. Namos is the Greek word for laws. Anti means against, so they're against law. They're anarchists. So those are the extremes, but most people function somewhere in between those extremes. On the licentious end, that leads to to immoral degeneracy. And I went through a lot of different things last week talking about lust patterns, power lust, approbation lust, sex lust, money lust, materialism lust, all kinds of different lusts that drive the soul and also produces a lot of mental attitude sins. Then we started getting into our topic on mental attitude uh, thought. Now, when I'm back here thinking about the sin nature and antinomianism, a couple of things happened this this week that were were rather uh, interesting and came together this afternoon. One of them was that uh, Pastor Ingram called me up on... uh, I think it was Sunday morning or Saturday afternoon, and he said he's been teaching through James, and he was looking at the transcript for my lesson. Now, we have a number of people. You may not know this. There are a number of people who transcribe lessons. They're local, and they're also around the country, and these people do an incredible job, and I so appreciate the time and the effort that they put into transcribing these lessons. We have thousands of downloads every month from transcripts alone off of the website as people download them for a variety of purposes. Students and other pastors and Sunday school teachers all download these uh, transcripts to help them in preparation uh, for their uh, for their lessons. And so these transcribers do just a, a great job. Nobody probably uses them more than I do because I don't always remember where I taught something or what I said, and I go to the index feature on the website or the search feature on the website, and if I can't find it, then I ask Barb, and she'll go find it right away. So so this is all very, very helpful. Well, Dan had pulled this lesson up from James, Lesson 62, on September the 15th, 1999. <laughs> I was at Preston City Bible Church at the time, and uh, so I was teaching through James and teaching on the sin nature. And he called up, and he said, man, I don't know what happened at that church that previous to that message, but you were on a rant. And he, so he started reading this to me, and I thought, well, oh, that was interesting. I don't remember anything about that. And then this afternoon as I got into this, and was working through our passage and talking about antinomianism. I also had a conversation with uh, George Meisinger about this passage and antinomianism, and so that's going to play a part of this. But I thought I would just go back and uh, we would have a little uh, uh, blast from the past, and I will read through a little bit of what I said some 19 years ago. The sin, and I haven't changed any, which is nice to know. The sin nature is motivated by a core of lust patterns that James is going to talk about in verse 2. I think I was in James chapter 4 or 5, one of those two. The lust patterns are going to be trend in one of two directions. One direction is towards asceticism and legalism. These are the people who define Christianity in terms of do's and don'ts. You can't do this, you can't do that. Now, we don't see as much of that today in the church as you saw 40, 50, 75 years ago because things have changed. Christians used to be uh, much more legalistic, and this happened as they came out of this battle that occurred in the late 19th and early 20th century called the fundamentalist modernist controversy. And the modernists were liberal Christians who no longer believed the Bible was the word of God, that it was, they no longer believed it was infallible. They no longer believed that Jesus died as a substitute for our sins or that salvation was by faith. They didn't believe in the virgin birth. They didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in a future literal bodily return of Jesus to the earth. 
they basically denied all the fundamentals of the faith. That is why the group that still held to the Bible were called fundamentalists, not because they were wacko extremists, but because they held to the historic fundamentals of biblical Christianity. They believed Jesus was fully God and fully man. They believed in a literal virgin birth. They believed in literal miracles. They believed in the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture. And in the midst of that battle, one of the things that happened that wasn't quite right is they began to emphasize a lot of these do's and don'ts over against the antinomianism that was beginning to develop among the on the liberal side. And usually that's what happens in many controversies is you have a polarization to the extremes. And so that 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 is what uh, took place. So in legalism, there is a confusion of morality with spirituality, where if I just do the right things, if I get up in the morning and I pray and I read my Bible, and if I witness, if I memorize scripture, then I'm good with God. Now, those things are all great and wonderful, but if you don't do it while you're walking by the Spirit, then it's just any anybody, unbeliever, some religious person out of fellowship, anybody can do those things, and that doesn't mean God has anything to do with it. So that's the asceticism side. On the antinomianism side, I said the other extreme, which is just as bad, is antinomianism. The word is taken from two Greek words, anti meaning against, and namas law. So the idea that Christ paid, and this is the idea that Christ has already paid for all my sins, and I have grace. Because sins are already paid for and taken care of, I can just do whatever I want to. All the imperatives of Scripture don't really mean, don't really mean that, because if God meant it, that would be legalism. Have you ever run into anybody like that? said, you know, you're just, so, yeah, John has, I have too. You're, you're saying, I need to read my Bible? Yeah, you need, that's part of the spiritual life. You need to be in right relationship with God, walking by the Spirit, but you ought to read your Bible, you need to pray. There's, there's a lot of commands in the Scripture, and they say, oh, no, no, that's legalism. You can't be legalism. We believe in grace. Grace means I can do whatever I want to because uh, Jesus already paid for the sin. Now, this is what was interesting. I said at the time, in a missionary letter to this church, that was Preston City Bible Church, somebody sent a letter, I don't remember it, uh, it at, they raised an antinomian question about some churches. Somebody said there's a churches out there that are teaching this, that there are no commands for the Christian life. All is grace and all is by faith. You don't even have to confess your sins. The premise is, that if the Christian way of life is a grace way of life, there can be no commands, otherwise it isn't grace. If the Christian, according to this antinomian view, if the Christian attempts to keep any commands in the New Testament, he's no different from the Jews who tried to keep the law. This teaching extends to every command, including those related to the filling of the Spirit and sanctification. In other words, According to these people, there's no command to keep with regard to adultery or murder or lying or gossip. Of course, uh, what they say is if you're walking by faith, God won't lead you into adultery, but there's no prohibitions against it for the Christian living under grace. That was all in that, in that particular let, letter. Reality is that from Acts to Jude, I, I've been wanting to do this for years. I finally did it today. From, figured out how to do it on my with my uh, computer program. From Acts to Jude, there are 528 imperative mood verbs. Think about that. An imperative mood verb is a command. Now, that's a lot of commands, most of which are addressed to Christians. From, if you take Acts out of the equation, there are 93 commands in Acts, so that leaves 435 imperatives in the epistles. But that's not all the commands that there are in the New Testament because in Greek there are other ways to express a command. You can do it through subjunctive verbs. You have prohibitions. You have a variety of other ways. You have imperatival participles that you can use. But there's at least 435 commands in the epistles. So what antinomians, antinomians say, well, you don't have to obey any of them. 
And I've heard people tell me that. I've had people write me letters and say that. You don't have to obey. That's not grace to say you have to obey those commands. And I just scratched my head and said, why did the Holy Spirit waste his breath in giving us at least 500 commands in the New Testament? And the, see, legalism says obeying the commands is what gets us righteousness and favor with God. No. The, those commands express the standards of living for those who are in God's royal family. There's a standard. You, you grew up in a family, and your parents had certain standards, and if you didn't obey them, then you were disciplined. And there were some, I'm sure, that if you did them, you weren't going to be coming home and sleeping in your bed that night. You might be out on the street. See, the, there are standards for how a member of God's family should live. They don't have anything to do with great getting, God, getting salvation. They don't have anything to do with, with necessarily maturing in the spiritual life. They have to do with just the, the life standard of the Christian life. Now, as I said earlier, as we came out of the fundamentalist modernist controversy, you had a lot of great Bible teachers like uh, R.A. Torrey, Dwight Moody, C.I. Schofield, Lewis Berry Chafer, who is the founder of Dallas Theological Seminary, and they founded schools, Moody Bible Institute, they founded uh, Dallas Theological Seminary, uh, Biola in uh, Southern California, the Bible Institute of Los Angeles is what Biola stands for, it's an acronym, and uh, they trained Bible teachers, they trained missionaries, they trained evangelists, and they trained uh, trained pastors. And one of the pastors that they trained was Pastor Seam, who pastored Baraka Church here in Houston for a little over 50 years. And he really emphasized grace. Now, there are a lot of people who took some of his grace teachings to a little bit of an extreme, and they became antinomian and licentious, but that wasn't his view. When I, was t I thought you'd be interested in this. When I was talking to George today, George said, you remember that little ditty Bob used to quote to make fun of the antinomians? I said, no, George, that predates me just a little bit. You, I was like 11 or 12 when you were at, Bar at Baraka, so I wasn't quite paying attention yet. This was this little ditty. Now, remember, this is, the, this is to characterize antinomians, and Pastor Theme would quote this to poke fun at them. Free from the law, O oh happy condition. Sin as you please, for there is remission. <laughs> that is the byword for the antinomians. But I've known a lot of people who say, well, I'll just confess my sin now, and then I'm going to go have fun. That's antinomianism. So, back to our topic. What the Bible teaches about mental attitude focus. We have to think key phrase is what a uh, verse that we've talked about before psalm i'm mean, excuse me proverbs 23 7a that's the first part of the verse for as he or sometimes it's translated as a man thinks in his heart so is he now the word think here is the hebrew word shaar which is only used a few times in the old testament it means to calculate or to reckon or to measure something. So it's the idea as a man reckons. Now, where do we have that word reckon in the English Bible? Can anybody think about it? Over in Romans 6, reckon yourselves dead to sin. It's the way logizomai, we'll get there, the way logizomai in the Greek is translated, which ha is a root idea, logos, logizomai. It's where we get our English word logic where you think through something rationally, thoughtfully, and you come to a conclusion. So for how a man calculates, it was also a term that was used in accounting. As a man thinks, this really emphasizes thought. So I had about four points I covered last week, so I'll hit them real briefly this time. First of all, what this tells us is that the mentality of the soul, that's the heart, as a man thinks in his heart, the heart is not the place where emotion is in the Bible. It is primarily the place where rational thought takes place. That's why it's used there in, 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 in Proverbs. It's as a man thinks where? In his heart, not here in the middle of his chest. 
heart is a term that relates to the center of the soul, the immaterial part, and the center of our soul is not your emotions, it's your thinking. So the mentality of the soul is where intellectual activity takes place. We plan, we calculate, we reason and believe with our minds. Thinking is the battleground of the spiritual life. That's where spiritual warfare takes place. It's not casting out demons. It's not taking dominion over Satan. All of that is just nothing more than pagan thought that's been brought into the church through a lot of mysticism. It is thinking about the Word of God, either applying it or rejecting it. So we've seen that the soul is made up of four different elements. I have them in circles. They overlap. Uh, The self-consciousness, we know who we are. Uh, I am. Mentality, I think. Conscience, I ought. That's our norms and standards. And volition, I will. The soul resides within the human body. That's the tan area in the background. But according to First Peter, the sin nature wars against the soul. So the key is we have to learn to think biblically in order to deal with the sin nature. Every one of us has a problem with our sin nature. Not only that, but your mother, your father, your children all have sin natures. You understand the dynamic of their sin nature. That's going to help you a lot in understanding who that person is. And as Christians, as you mature, sometimes you seem like you're just inconsistent because some days you're walking by the Spirit and you have one set of standards, and the next day you're just full of yourself and you're arrogant and you're self-willed, and you have another set of standards from your sin nature, and we go back and forth, and that's the battle. That's the battle Paul talks about in Romans chapter 7. I I don't do the things I want to do, and I... Uh, <clears throat> want to do the, and I don't want to do the things that I do. So I've got this battle going on inside my soul. So as we look at First Peter four one, that we have this resolve for a purpose, and that is we resolve to live without sin. After a point, we wake up and we say, you know, I'm not getting anywhere letting my sin nature control things and being antinomian. I need to win the battle. I need to do it biblically. 1 Peter 4.2, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, the lusts of mankind, the lusts of the sin nature. I'm not going to live to feed the lust patterns of my soul. Instead, I'm going to live for the will of God, which means I have to know the will of God. You can't know the will of God by contemplating your navel. You can't know the will of God by just going off into a corner and folding your eye, your hands and closing your eyes and, and uttering some sort of chant. You know the will of God by studying the Word of God, reading the Word of God, listening to somebody who is biblical, teach the Word of God, not just the surface of the text, but digging down into the Scripture so we can really understand what is being said by the writers of Scripture. So we have to uh, live for the will of God. Takes us back to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, that we have to be conformed to His will. 1 Peter 2.15 and 3.17 say talk about doing God's will. 1 Peter 2.15 says, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. That is, when you're being ridiculed, when you're being mocked, when you're being ignored, when you are given the silent treatment, when there's passive, uh, passive suffering directed your way or active suffering, then your response is always doing good. No matter what that person does, no matter how much they may wish harm or wish to hurt you uh, might be, that we are to do the right thing so that we can put to silence the ignorance of these foolish men. And then in 1 Peter 3.17, Peter wrote, For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. So that has to do with God's uh, sovereign or decreed will in our life in taking us into a situation 
where we suffer for doing good rather than doing evil. Second point we saw was as we grow and mature in life, we learn many different things about who we are and why we are important. You learn this from your parents, you learn this from your peers, you learn this from your professors, you learn this from teachers, and some of it's right and some of it's wrong. A lot of it may be wrong. And you learn all kinds of wrong things. And then you become a believer and you've got all this garbage in your soul. And so we have to get rid of it. We have to learn these three basic things I pointed out last time from the Bible, that first of all, we're all created in God's image. Therefore, we all have value because we're image bearers. Even if you're an unbeliever, you have value because you're created in the image and likeness of God. That's the reason for capital punishment stated in Genesis chapter 9 is because if you murder a human being, you are murdering an image bearer of God. And that's an act of blasphemy, an act of rebellion directed against the one who, whose image this person is a manifestation of even if it's a corrupt image, because we all have that image corrupted by sin, but we're still in the image of God. So that's the second point, that image has been corrupted by sin. And third, that the only solution is, number one, to trust in Christ as Savior. The Bible doesn't say, invite Jesus into your life, invite Jesus into your heart. It doesn't say, uh, love Jesus. It says, believe in Jesus. He who believes on him is not condemned because uh, he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the only begotten Son of God. In John 3.18, the issue is belief. Again and again and again, 95 times in John, John says believe. Now, this takes us back to Romans 12.2, which I've mentioned that as part of the, or excuse me, as the second part, after we believe, we have to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is how Peter closes out his second epistle with a command. Oh, that's right. If we obey a command, we're just being legalistic and there's no grace. How in the world can you make a command to grow in grace? And by saying grow in grace, you're being legalistic the irrationality of some Christians is just beyond explanation. We are to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We grow in grace by understanding God's character, understanding that nothing that we have, nothing that we are, is as a result of how wonderful we are or what we've done. It's all because God in his goodness has decided to give it to us. And we grow in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Knowledge means we have to study. The only way we get knowledge is to learn. And the only way we learn is to discipline ourselves to read, to listen, to study, to reflect on what God has revealed in his word. We don't get the knowledge by osmosis. We have to study it. And that's how we grow. It's through grace And it's through knowledge. It's not by singing hymns or Christian choruses. It's not by fellowship with other believers. Those are byproducts. We grow by knowledge, by studying the Word. And what it does is it renews our mind, the thinking in the soul. And that word nous in the Greek is the word for mind, and it's also related to that word noia that was translated in, uh, in verse uh, 1 as um, the same mind, that thinking, okay, that resolve. So we have to renew our mind, our, our thinking. That means we have to learn new thoughts that comes from the Word of God. Now we get to 1 Peter 4.2, and 1 Peter 4.2 says that the purpose for this is that we should no longer live the rest of our time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but the will of God. And that t- I mentioned Matthew 6.33 last, last week, uh, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. The Bible will reorient your priorities. That's what it means to think biblically. So if you think in your heart what the Word says, that will transform everything else in your life. The fourth point, the conflict in the believer's soul is a conflict of belief, 
We either believe the human viewpoint rationales and the human viewpoint explanations and rationalizations, or we believe God's word. We act on one or the other. Human viewpoint is the way man thinks in independence of God. I can somehow explain my existence and the rationale of my origin and my purpose without any reference to the word of God, and it will satisfy me and make me happy. That's human viewpoint. Human viewpoint manifests as multiple religions. It manifests as multiple philosophies of life, and it's man's attempt to make life work apart from God. Proverbs says that there is a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof is death. Divine viewpoint is the sum total of what the Scripture teaches, talking about God as creator, then God as redeemer and justifier, then God is the focus of thinking in our lives. Now, I want you to turn to the Old Testament. This was where I was wrapping up last time, to Isaiah chapter 55. This is a great chapter. It emphasizes, once again, the role of thinking and learning to think something about what God says. Second, I mean, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, verse 16, talks about we ha- that we have the mind of Christ, the thinking of Christ. It's in the Word of God. So in chapter 55 of Isaiah, we read verse, in verse 7, let the wicked forsake his way. See, there's the God of grace saying the wicked person needs to give up his wickedness. That's not legalism. That's grace. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to God, shuv, that has to do with turning back to God. Sometimes it's translated repentance, but it simply means changing the direction of your life. And God will have mercy on him. See, sometimes when we've been living in sin, like the prodigal son, we return to God by confessing sin. See, it doesn't say confession here, but confession is clearly stated in both Old and New Testament as the means by which we turn back to God. We confess sin, we're forgiven and cleansed, and God has mercy on us, and he pardons us, he forgives us. And then we have a fascinating passage in verse 8, for God says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. We have to learn to think how God thinks, because our natural way of thinking doesn't conform to God's thinking. We get God, the, we can understand to some degree God's thinking by what he has revealed to us about his thoughts. He says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. In other words, if you can reach out to the edge of the universe, and you can't, you can't reach up to understand my thoughts. They're so much higher and so much different. You have to take it by faith. And then he talks about uh, as the rain comes down, the snow from heaven, and they don't go back but water the earth and make it bring forth in bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It, notice how it always goes back to God's word. It always goes back to knowing God's word, reading it, understanding it, hiding it in our heart, all of these things making it shape and conform our thinking. And God says, it won't return to me void. Its purpose is to change your life, and it will change your life. It shall accomplish what I please and prosper in the thing for which I sent it. So point five, right thinking, that is the right mental attitude, is going to first of all be grounded in grace. Grace is God's plan for dealing with the human race. Grace is not licentiousness. Grace means God deals with us on the basis of his character and what Christ did on the cross, and it has nothing to do with what you did, I did, how we feel, or anything else. It has to do with what Christ did on the cross in paying for sin. So therefore, God has revealed this to us in terms of truth. First, second, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 2.16, For who has known the mind of the Lord? In context, from 1 Corinthians 2.7 on, we're talking about what eye has not seen, ear has not heard, what has entered into the mind of, man, of, of, of God. It's talking about the Holy Spirit who has revealed these things to man. 
So human viewpoint derives from the independent thinking of the creature who separated himself from God because of his own rebellion. So all of these things, Islam, Buddhism, Christian science, all the works, religions, animism, uh, Hinduism, all of these things are the product of human rebellion against God. They are a rejection of God. They're not people seeking God. They are people seeking a substitute for the God of the Bible. And at the core are two attributes, autonomy and arrogance, a little alliteration there. Autonomy means independence. I don't need God. I don't need his word. I can make life work without him. There's a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof is death. That's what happened to Eve in the garden. She ate the fruit and died spiritually, then convinced her husband that he should eat the fruit, and he died spiritually, and that's why we're in a mess. But those, that, that's autonomy. I'm going to be independent of God. I don't need his word. Arrogance is... I can do it all. I'm sufficient without God. I can make life work without him. That's the same thing that characterizes Satan's thinking. So human viewpoint is essentially Satan's viewpoint. It's a demonic viewpoint. It's the thinking of the world, the thinking of demons, that I can make life work apart from God. I don't need his word. I can go dabble in it on Sunday morning. Every now and then I might pick it up and read a verse, but to immerse myself in the word, to let it immerse itself in me, well, that just sounds a little fanatical. But see, what underlies that thinking is that somehow I can judge God. I know what's best for my life. The creator who made every molecule in my body and, and energized every thought that I have doesn't really know what I need. That's autonomy and arrogance. It's satanic thinking. Now, the seventh point is that as this is the thinking of Satan, it's reflected in every human system of thought. Rationalism, empiricism, mysticism are all based on a rejection of the truth of God's word and they, that they use their systems to judge the Bible, all the false religions. But this comes out of fallen man's heart. Jeremiah seventeen nine. The heart is deceitful and wicked above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Who can know your heart? The innermost thoughts that characterize your thinking. Who knows it? The answer is not stated, but it's God knows it. God knows that. And so we'll learn that God has a tool to help you expose the innermost thinking in your own heart. You don't need to expose it to everybody else, but we need to understand that our heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. Two weeks ago when uh, Tommy had his heart attack, and went into the hospital, and fortunately it was a moderate heart attack. And the next day, the doctors were coming in and discussing his heart and everything. I said, Tommy, did you tell him the most important thing? He said, what was that? I said, that your heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. And by the way, he's doing great. I talked to Janice today. He's in rehab now. Uh, he's had three good days. There's no problems other than he's really weak from spending two weeks in a bed. And uh, she found a house today, put a contract on it, and uh, that was accepted. The problem has been they put out five previous offers that were already null and void by the time they got there because it's a hot market in Kansas City, and they were getting uh, upbidded uh, in every every time they wanted a house. Somebody else offered something with more offered more money, so they found a house is accepted. So, Lord is really providing for them. Eighth point, in contrast to the unbeliever who operates on autonomy and arrogance, the believer must develop a mental and spiritual toughness based on truth. We have to be focused. We have to be mentally tough. We are not mentally tough in this country. There are a few people who still survive, who were veterans of Second World War, maybe the Korean War, uh, a number of people who've served in the armed forces, some who have work, uh, 
functioned on some athletic teams who really learned to develop a tough mental attitude. But for the most part, Americans are just wusses. They're pansies. They're weak. They're wimpy. Uh, the younger they are, the worse it gets. We haven't been tried we haven't gone through things like the Depression. We haven't grown up during a major world cataclysmic war like World War II. We have everything that we can possibly want and more and think we just are impoverished. We are so self-absorbed and narcissistic, we can't even recognize it. And it's sad. And as Christians, it makes it tougher because we have to overcome that which was trained in us by our culture to develop a mental and spiritual toughness, a discipline. Discipline is self-discipline is part of the fruit of the Spirit. It is self-control, self-mastery. So as we walk by the Spirit, the Spirit's going to be prompting us to do things like read the Word and to pray, to organize our schedule, our time every day. Ephesians 5, uh, 16 says that we are to redeem the time. That means you have to learn some things about time management so that you can get up and say in the morning, uh, I did this uh, many, many years ago. I was teaching school down in Channel View, and I said, I've got to find time to just be in the Word every day. I've got to leave the house at about 645. Uh, that means I have to shower and have breakfast. That means I have to get up at 615. But if I want to spend 30 minutes in the Word, I have to get up at 545 maybe a little bit earlier. If I'm going to get up at 5.30 or 5.45 in the morning, that means I have to go to bed about 9.30 or 10. That's the development of discipline in time management so that you can achieve the objective. And that's how it works. Now, some people can't do that because they're night people. I don't understand how they ever function in this culture because you have to be at work at 7 or 8 normally. And if you're a, morning, if you're a night person, that really doesn't work for you. But that's what we have to do. We have to develop this little ways, and that's why God brings suffering and adversity into our lives in order to teach us and to train us in those areas to implement through self-mastery, self-control, those, those principles. Jesus exhibited this when he faced the torturers, those who were uh, rebuking him and mocking him and reviling him, it's not just a physical courage. A lot of people can have, have a physical courage. A lot of people can have a moral courage. But a spiritual courage takes you right into the heart of spiritual warfare. And the only thing, it, the only way, thing that trains it is to walk by the Spirit and to learn the Word and to apply the Word. So this is a process of growth, point nine. In the process of growth, the Bible exposes, evaluates, and reshapes our innermost thoughts. See, the heart is what? The heart is deceptive and wicked above all things. Who can know it? The answer there is God. When we get to this point, we learn that it is God's word that exposes, evaluates, and reshapes our innermost thoughts, our presuppositions, I mean, from our presuppositions to our hopes and dreams. Everything gets overhauled. Hebrews 4.12. We often go there for the first part. The Word of God is alive and powerful, and we start to drain off after that. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. That's a machaira. There's one sitting in front of the pulpit in front of me. And, with it, and it's sharp. That's why we have a piece of scotch tape along the edges so that nobody runs up here and says, oh, I wonder if it's sharp, and cuts their finger off. The picture in the scripture is that the machaira is so sharp that it can divide what nothing else can do. And this is talking about the word of God can, can get into the, it can pierce the deepest fundamental motivations, intentions, and the word there for intense is annoya. That's the word we have in 1 Peter 4.1. It exposes the resolves, the motivations of our thinking, okay? It is able to do that. It is uh, opening those things up so that we can self-evaluate and that we can understand what's going on in our soul and apply the Word of God 
so that we conform to his will, so that we are transformed by the renewing of our mind. The psalmist expresses the prayer for this in Psalm 139, 23, and 24, where the psalmist says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. How does God search you? This isn't some mystical thing where you just sort of splay yourself out and say, oh, search me somehow, just just hit me with it. And there's some spotlight from heaven that comes down. It comes from God's word. His revelation is what you say. It's word that is alive and powerful. Search me, O God, and know my heart, my thinking once again. Try me and know my anxieties. Reveal to me the, what I'm worrying about. Help me with the fears that shape my thinking, the anxieties, the, the, all of the different things that, that, that bubble up from the sin nature deep in my soul. And see if there is any wicked way in me. We don't like that as people. Don't expose my sin. Don't pull out your, the scalpel of your word and split open the guts of my soul so that I can see how deceitful and wicked my heart really is. But see, when the word of God does its surgical strike, then it provides the solution to replace it in the soul so that you can learn what, what that truth is. And it concludes, and lead me in the way everlasting. So wisdom psalm. In wisdom, in wisdom literature, leading in the way is the way of either the way of wisdom, the way of God, or the way of man's thinking. There's a way that seems right to man. See, it's that same idea. You see this again and again in Proverbs. So we have to be transformed by the renewing of our mind with the result that we can demonstrate with our life that the will of God is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, another important term that we see here, our verse that we see in relation to thinking is in Romans 6, 11 and 12. In Romans 6, 11, Paul says, reckon yourselves dead to sin. Now, that doesn't really resonate a lot with people today. That's a little antiquated in its expression. New American Standard translates it, consider yourselves dead to sin or think about yourself as being dead to sin. You can think about yourself all kinds of ways. You can think you're too fat. You can think you're too skinny. You're too short. You're too this. You're too that. But the Bible says, think about it this way. You're dead to sin. Christ paid the penalty. When you trusted in him, you are identified with his death, burial, and resurrection so that you are now free from the tyranny of sin. You still have a sin nature, and you let that rule your life too much. Here's the solution. Think that you're dead to sin. You don't have to do it. You feel like you do. It's like you've been addicted to sugar for years. You think you have to put it in your mouth, but you really don't. You don't have to sin. You reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to Christ. That's the positive. I'm alive to Christ. Paul's not pounding on us for our sin. He's saying, instead, think about being alive to Christ, that you're living for him, you're living to serve him, you're living to grow. Replace the focus on sin with the focus on Christ. That doesn't happen overnight. It's not a one-shot decision. It takes time. It takes weeks. It takes months. It takes years because it's incremental growth like everything else in life. And then Paul says in the next verse, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. He's not saying you don't have sin and you won't have a struggle. He says don't let it reign. That's mental attitude focus. Don't let it reign. Choose not to let yourself be dominated by your sin nature that you should obey its lust. Why? You obey its lust. As Peter says, the lusts make war against your soul. You want to really destroy yourself? Then just give in to all your lust patterns. And this is what he warns about in the very next verse. In verse 3, he says, For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. Now here, when he says we 
I don't think he's really including himself. We know enough about Peter to where Peter didn't get, this is sort of a uh, authorial we. We have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. When we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. The implication is there were some of his readers who were believers who were still doing this. They hadn't changed their lifestyle. They were, they were antinomian. They were living according to the standards of the, of the Gentile uh, Roman pagan lifestyle and having a wonderful time uh, doing it. But we have to take some time on this. But the question we need to address is this one. Who are the Gentiles? Often you will read this as if Paul's writing and say, well, Gentiles are just another word for unbelievers. It's not. He's talking about Gentiles. These are Jews. These terms have to be taken literally. They are saved Jews. But the Jewish culture has always had a large number that had just assimilated to the local customs the pagan customs of whatever the culture is. And so he's saying, we've got to stop this. Uh-oh. Does that mean Peter's legalistic? He's saying we have to stop living like the Gentiles, like the culture around us. Uh-oh. What are we going to do? He's not grace-oriented. No, we've got to understand what grace is. Grace is God gives us the power to be able to do this, because it's not dependent upon who we are, but on Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. And we'll start up there next time. Father, thank you for this time we've had to study your word, to reflect on these things, to understand the unique and wonderful spiritual life that we've been given that's not dependent on who we are, what we do. It's not dependent upon trying to pull ourselves up by our own uh, spiritual bootstraps and through a, some sort of intensive moral reformation uh, program somehow make ourselves pleasing to you. We're already pleasing to you because we possess the imputed righteousness of Christ and that in him we are going to be transformed if we follow the procedures of learning your word, growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, give us a desire to have the resolve that Jesus Christ demonstrated on the cross and that Peter is exhorting us to have in this, in this chapter, that we may grow and mature as believers. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.